Luke chapter 2 to begin, uh, looking at verses 4 to 7 as our first verses. Uh, I remember back when I was in the eighth grade, one, there's a new kid that showed up in eighth grade, and uh, he became very quickly one of my best friends. This, this new kid, it's very super uh, outgoing, super talkative person, probably too talkative as a person. Um, and that was great for me because I'm, I'm not that talkative. And so it was an easy friendship to get going with. Um, so he became one of my best friends and he was only there for that year, but he became one of my best friends. The only problem is I don't remember his name. <laughs> and that's because the first day that I met him, he told me his name. But then he immediately told him, no one calls me that. He said, everyone calls me coach. So when I think about my friend in eighth grade, I think of coach, right? I don't know what his real name was. I forget what his real name was. James or Charles or I don't know. I don't remember what it is. But everybody called him coach. Everybody called him coach because his dad was a coach. So he said, and I don't know the logic of that. We were eighth graders, so we were like, okay. That's fine. So from that day onward, everyone in our class called him coach. Rich, you remember him? Yes, you do. Do you know his name? I don't either. See, Rich and I were in eighth grade together and I don't remember his name, but I remember coach, right? He never coached anything ever that I know of. He wasn't a very good athlete. He was just a normal, it wasn't like some kind of spectacular, but he just told us that was his name. And so everybody called him that. It feels a little ironic today to think back to that, to call somebody something that clearly they were not. If his name had been James, I don't think anyone would have a second thought about it. But calling him coach when he wasn't a coach or even really a, a spectacular athlete felt like, feels like, I don't know, off right? Pretending or something. Americans, as a rule, aren't really big on the meanings of names. When we name children, we name them after someone, or we pick a name that we think sounds cool or or nice. Uh, I think today we're in some kind of competition to pick the weirdest names possible. So that's fine. Go ahead and have that competition. I'm not sure who's voting on it, but have at it, right? But we generally don't do a lot of digging into what someone's name means and then name that person this thing or compare them to what their name means. Like my name. When I was young, I looked up what my name means. It means brave, warlike one. I don't know how brave I am. I've never been in a war. I don't think anybody cares, right? Because my name is Mark. That's fine. That's wonderful. And nobody thinks one thing about what it means. But in the word of God and in the time of scripture, names had and carried a lot of meaning. So for this Christmas season, we're going to be talking about a few of the names of our Savior that we find in scripture. Names of Jesus. There are dozens, possibly hundreds of things that could be considered names for the Son of God. Each one used to tell us something about him. We call him the Son of God. We call him Messiah. We call him Master or Teacher. We call him the Bread of Life, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. As we just sung this morning, so many, many of the titles. Um, wonderful, Counselor, this is Christmas time titles for Jesus. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's so many titles in Scripture that are applied to Jesus. The list just goes on and on and on. But to, in, in this series, we're going to try to take the three most common names for Jesus and look at what they say about him. And we're going to start with the name that we use most 
generally, the most familiar parts of the story in Luke chapter 4, we're going to start with the name Jesus. So let's start with the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. It says this, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So this is the story that we hear, the story that we read. This is context for the story that we are celebrating, the reason for trees and lights and Christmas carols and, and you know all of the stuff that we put around Christmas. This is the context. And as we read this story, maybe it is so familiar to you that you start to feel Christmas stirring up inside of you. And it's not really Christmas till we read those words. But remember, this is not some made up story, fable, fairy tale, feel good story. This is a real life story. So as we read it, try to think about what we see here. What we see is a pretty normal family. A normal family of that time who were not in charge even of whether or not they should travel. Someone else was in charge and told them, you got to pick up your stuff and go. I don't know how much you like being told what to do. Told whether or not you have to travel at Christmas time. They were told they had to travel. They were not in charge of where they needed to go. He had to go to Bethlehem because that's where he was originally. That's where his, his family heritage was from. They were not in charge of whether or not there was a place for them where they were going. As a matter of fact, when they get there, we find out there wasn't a place for them where they would normally stay. So as we read this, and we'll read this on Christmas Eve, we hear like, Silent night playing in our heads and candlelights and peaceful and it's wonderful. I'm not sure that's what that felt like, right? I'm sure. How many of you have, over Thanksgiving holiday were frustrated at some point with the people around you? Anyone? Yeah. That's almost like guaranteed, isn't it? When you get a bunch of people together and family members together and th you don't have as much like control and say as you'd like to have, frustration. I'm sure that in this journey, in this trip, can you imagine what it'd be like to have to travel about 90 miles on foot or on something like a donkey through weather and terrain? And then when you arrive, the point of this story that, that he says in verse seven is that there wasn't room where there were normal, they would normally expect to stay. There wasn't a guest room available for them. There wasn't a place for them to stay. And then on top of that, one of the most stressful things that ever happens in your life, they had their first baby. Remember when you had your first baby? Yeah, did life seem like a breeze there? Or did it get really, really challenging really quick? right? So this is real life. And this is what, this is a normal family. This does not feel like some idealized story, a regular birth a regular experience, a seemingly regular baby who needs somewhere to lay and something to be wrapped in. This is the story of Christmas. That there was nothing about this baby that would have told us this is going to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world until later when the angels showed up in the sky and the shepherds came by to visit. visit. But for Mary and Joseph, they knew the promise of God, but I think their experience was pretty normal. And then they give Jesus a name. So let's turn back to Matthew chapter one. We're gonna see the origin of this name, Jesus, right? 
We hear this story about Jesus' name. So the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, uh, verses 18 to 21, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, we know, sitting here today, this was not a normal baby. But I would say many, many people who look around would say, normal baby. We know he wasn't. Without a doubt, I would say, without a doubt, as we look back at history, whether you follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection changed the world. There is literally no debate about that. There is no debate that the person born Jesus changed the world. That is a historical fact. Christmas celebrations are just a tiny fraction of the impact that Jesus has had. Uh, years ago, I read a book by John Ortberg called Who Is This Man? It's a, it, ironic, we have a song now that we're going to sing called Who Is This Man? But the book Who Is This Man? by John Ortberg goes into great detail about the impact that Jesus' life has had on the centuries that followed. Talking about there wouldn't be such a thing as hospitals. There wouldn't be such a thing as schools. Like, the idea that love is a value instead of a weakness. These are things that came because Jesus came. And all those who followed him, this is the way that they followed him. No other human being who ever lived had the lasting and transformative impact that Jesus had. Even an avowed atheist like Bart Ehrman wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And the last line, the last sentence of the book in which he's trying to prove how it was just totally foreseeable that the world became Christian, that Christianity took over the world and it was just a natural process. There was nothing supernatural about it. This is the last line, the summarization of the whole book. However one evaluates the merits of the case, whether the Christianization of the West was a triumph to be treasured or a defeat to be lamented, no one can deny that it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. That's somebody who says, I don't believe he's the savior of the world, but you look at the results, you look at the history. Jesus had more impact on this world than anyone else has ever had. But that night, it was probably hard to see that. It was probably hard to feel that. It wasn't any different than any other birth. And then they give him the name Jesus. And we think at that point, ah, now we know he's got this name, Jesus, and that's the special name. We just sang about it. it's the name above all names. When he gets the name Jesus, it's like, ah, now Jesus is like this. This is very great. We can see that he's the superhero. It's like calling him Iron Man or something, right? Not exactly. The name Jesus is the English transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is a shortened version of the longer name, Joshua, Yahashua, Yeshua, okay? So Yeshua was translated into Greek and then into English, and we got Jesus out of it. The longer name of that is Joshua, and we know a few Joshuas. But the name Jesus was pretty normal in the first century. 
Joshua and Jesus was pretty normal in the first century. Archaeologists have already uncovered the tombs of 71 Jesuses from the time of Jesus' death. So there were about 71 Jesuses who died around the time Jesus died. So when we sing, there is no other name, what? What's the point? When we start looking at the name of Jesus and his birth, there was very little at the start to suggest to an outside onlooker that this was something that would change history. But the angel says something when he talks to Joseph about this name. He said, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this is where we start to get the way that this name is used differently than anyone else's name. Jesus from the Hebrew roots of it means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. There was a message in the names that the Hebrews used. The angel says to Joseph, use this name, meaning the Lord saves or the Lord's salvation. And he gives a reason why he should use it. Usually the names referred to God, the Hebrew names that referred to God were a way to remember something essential about God, some promise some characteristic about God that, that the parents thought was a really important thing and they wanted to pass on to their children. So they named them something about God, like the name Daniel, okay? There's a, there's a prophet in the Old Testament, Daniel, right? The name Daniel has a meaning. It means God is my judge. It's ironic that Daniel is born at the time of God's judgment and lives through it. it means God is my judge. Jeremiah means the Lord exalts. God is the one who picks up people. And that's an interesting thing for Jeremiah in that he did not very much feel like he should be a prophet. He didn't want to be a prophet, but God chose him and picked him up and said, your voice is going to be magnified. Elijah, Yahweh is my God. At a time where all of Israel seemed to be turning after Baal and, and Ashtoreth and all kinds of, so of pagan worship. Elijah's name, the, the premier prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Not all those others, Yahweh is my God. So many people's names meant something about God. But the angel says, Jesus' name doesn't mean something about God. It means something about this baby. That's, that's a unique twist. That's where it shifts. The angel says, I'm not trying to tell you something about God by the, light, by the name of this baby. I'm trying to tell you something about this baby. Baby, he will save his people from their sins. Call him the Lord saves because he is going to save people. John the Baptist refers to this idea in the meaning of Jesus' name when he calls him the Lamb of God. In John chapter one, John chapter one, it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a theme in the New Testament and a theme of the name Jesus. The Lamb of God, picturing the Lamb that was part of every Passover, which was a reminder of how God had saved his people through the blood of a lamb. This is the way that Jews were given demonstrations from God about what his plan was and how he was going to bring eternal salvation to them and through them. The worship of God's people in sacrifices and in the Mosaic law was a pattern. Every time that they went and worshiped, God was trying to show them a pattern so that they would understand what was going to go down, what was going to happen. And so God gave them to demonstrate and normalize this truth. Sin has a result. 
Every time they put a knife to the animal, it was a reminder, it was a demonstration that sin has a result and that death is the result. Further, the offering of a lamb or some other animal for the sinner demonstrated that another life could substitute in that result and that the sinner could be forgiven and escape death that their sin brought if someone else paid the price, if another life paid the price. The Old Testament system of sacrifices was given by God to educate and teach his people so that when the Lamb of God came, when Jesus, the one who was saved his people from their sins, showed up, they would understand. And what they would understand is that sin is death. Today, we still need to understand that. Christian, I don't know if you really, really believe this. Sin is death. It isn't the life that it promises. It's death. When people are like, how could God sentence people to hell? Don't you understand what God is saying is your sin takes you there. Sin produces death. It's something we choose. He's declared to us what the end of it is, but we choose it anyway, and then we blame him for what we chose. Sin produces death by its very nature. The farmer doesn't cause a corn seed to produce corn. He plants corn, and corn comes because corn seeds produce corn. Sin produces death. That's what it produces. It's what it produces. So John the Baptist refers to Jesus with his name, meaning the Lord saves. He says, he is the one who will save his people from from their sins by being the lamb of God, the substitute whose blood will bring forgiveness for their sin and rescue them from the penalty that they chose. Instead, I, Jesus, will take that on me. So he's called Jesus because he saves us from our sin. He saves us from the death that naturally results. If we put our faith in him, he forgives us and he washes us clean. That's a hard thing to get your head around because you and I can still remember the stuff that Jesus forgave us for. And so does the devil. And he comes after you with that stuff, doesn't he? Remember this? Try to embarrass you all over again about it trying to put shame on you all over again about it. It's sometimes hard for us to hold on to the concept of how we have been forgiven, we have been saved in Jesus. But he doesn't just save us from the result. He saves us from the very power of sin in our lives. The Bible talks about us being slaves to sin. We don't turn to Jesus to add some good to our lives. We turn to him because without him, we are doomed to be enslaved to our sinful desires and the destruction and death that comes as we continue to choose what only ever produces death. And only Jesus can save us from it. Only Jesus can rescue us from it. And so we turn to Jesus to be saved. Sin promises to give us what we want. But what we find out eventually is that it doesn't ever really deliver. It's good at giving us a taste, but not the whole meal. It's good at telling us that we have a pathway to control and grab onto whatever we want, but we never quite get there. And so we've lived these lies. What seems like connection is actually full of loneliness. Boy, isn't that today? What seems like joy is actually only pleasure that goes away before you can ever get your hands around it, right? What seems like hope is actually a never-ending chase filled with stress and exhaustion. Sin 
lies. Because if it told you the truth, you would want no part of it. The one who tells us the truth is Jesus. And he sets us free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. I would say to you this morning, this is the truth. This is the truth of Christmas and the truth of Jesus. He is a savior. The Lord saves. He is a savior to all who believe. He is the only answer to every true wound, every true struggle, every true trial, and every unimaginable pain. He is the answer and the only answer to it. So I'm saying to you, yours, you, you think, well, Mark, you don't know my life story. You're right, I don't. But I know this. I know this truth from the word of God. No matter what is wrong with your life, Jesus is your savior. Maybe you're a Christian and you're like, well, I turned to Jesus and I tried that and it didn't work out because I'm still a mess. Guess what? Jesus will still save you. And he still is the only one in the business. He is still your savior. No matter how bad it is, no matter how much of it even is your fault, Jesus is your savior. I'm not trying to tell you that you come to Jesus and he makes all your problems go away. What I mean is that he is a savior to all who believe, but he will not force anyone to believe. He offers salvation. He provides it. He pays for it, but he doesn't force it. And one of the things that confuses us is that he rarely saves us from what we would think are our main problems. What our main, what we, this, if you would save me from this, Jesus, then I would believe in you. Jesus rarely saves us from what we want him to save us from in the way that we want him to save us. Because what he saves us in is a way that is better than we expect. Even if we don't understand how it could be better. For example, Israel, Jesus shows up. Israel, God's people, they wanted salvation from the unclean Gentiles, the Romans, who were ruling over them. They wanted to be free as God's people, free to worship, free to serve him, free to run things as God had told them. But the Romans had conquered the world right after the Greeks had done it first, that the Romans owned everything. So when Jesus showed up, this idea of Messiah was, yes, if Jesus is my savior, if the Messiah is a savior, this is the kind of salvation we want. Get the Romans out of our business. He's gotta be, I don't know, some kind of warrior. He's gotta be some kind of strong man that has supernatural power to beat back the Roman empire and drive them out and set us free. That was their idea of salvation. And when Jesus did not do that, they were like, well, then you're not a savior. But it's because of this. And I think we get this wrong all the time. Jesus always saves us in a better way than we want. He always saves us in a fuller way, in a more eternal way. If Jesus had only saved Israel how they wanted, it would have been such a downgrade from the eternal hope and life healing salvation that he gave instead. Also, the Jews aspired for the Messiah to save the Jews not the world. The Jews aspired for the Messiah to be their Messiah. The world is full of rebels and ungodliness. All those people need to be judged and condemned. The Messiah is going to come and save us. But this Messiah, the true and living God, came to save the world by taking all of their sins on him. See, when we see the name Jesus, he will save his people. This is what we're talking about. This is why his name is the name that we worship. His name is Jesus because he saves all those who trust him and he saves them in every way, rescuing them from the doom of their guilt and the doom that their sin brings, delivering them into new life and transformation, rescuing us from slavery, from stuckness, from defeat, 
from emotions that we just keep turning and turning and turning around in that we can never seem to. He is the savior of our lives. He rescues us from deceit. He rescues us from the lies. He rescues us from bitterness. He rescues us from from conflict. He is the savior of our souls. And so I would say to you today, if he is not saving you like that, do you know him? Do you even know him? Because his very name means the Lord saves. It is so much his nature that it's in his name. Jesus means the Lord saves. And the angel said, call this baby that name because he will save his people from their sins. And that's why we elevate this name. That's why this name is the name that we sing about. Not because of the name itself, but because of the one who owns it. Now our Savior's name, Jesus, the Savior of our sins, he is the one that we sing about. We sing about the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We call on him by that name. We find in his name comfort, hope, peace, life in the name of Jesus. The baby that was born, lived, and died was raised to life so that he could deliver on a promise and on a name that he was given before he was even born. Now that name is glorified. And we read about that. Paul gives that to us in Philippians chapter two. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And then he gives us exactly what he's talking about. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At his first coming, he was just normal, regular. Nothing seemed different about him, except if you talked to him, except if he used his power to heal you, except if you opened your soul and, and put your trust in him, then everything seemed changed. But, but just from the outside looking in, he refused the trappings of his glory. That's part of what Paul says right before that in Philippians 2. He laid it all aside. He humbled himself. When people would come and they would say things about him, he would say, keep this to yourself. When he would heal people, he'd say, don't tell anybody about this. He, he came humble the first time. But when all is said and done, Jesus will be the one to whom everyone bows. He will be the pinnacle of everything. And he will be worshiped and adored. As we read in the scenes in Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14 and Daniel 11 and 12 and Matthew 16 and 2 Peter 3 and many other places, when Jesus comes back, he will come back in power and in glory. And no one can stop him. He will come back as the Lord of all. And one day, on that day, every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord. Every mouth will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Because he is. And it's the name of Jesus, the Savior of the world, that is the cause of that glory. Right? That, therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name that at the name Jesus, the Lord saves. What is God's glory? That he saves. And who did he save? All who believe. Anyone, no matter how bad, how deep, how far. But one day is not what we're waiting for. We declare his glory now. The people of God, with our voices, with our lives, in our hearts, We 
declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is our Savior. We bring honor and glory to him. His name is above every name because his name is the name that saves. In every way that you need to be saved, his name saves. And so my question this morning, first of all, I have a question for every single one of us. Has he saved you? Have you gone beyond hearing about him, liking Jesus, being interested in Jesus, coming to church to hear about Jesus or not coming to church to hear about Jesus? Have you gone beyond all of it and actually invited him into your life to come and save you? Because that's what he came to do. He didn't come so that we could have songs, lights, Christmas presents. He didn't come for that. I'm glad we do it. He came to save your soul. Maybe that's the thing that's missing from your life. You're tired. You're stressed. You're reaching for all the things that Jesus brings, peace and joy and hope and life, without realizing that all of it is a byproduct of giving your life to the one who has this name above every name. You need to give your life to Jesus, to invite him to save you today. How would you do that? Well, talk to the person who brought you. Come talk to me after the service. Talk to anyone who was up on stage. We'll sit and pray with you. You can ask him to be your savior today. And for those who have been saved, is he still your savior? Sometimes I think we as Christians, we kind of go like this. Well, Jesus, you saved me. That's great. I'll take it from here. Right? You did enough. I got it. Let me just fill you in. You don't got it. You don't have it. You weren't able to save yourself before. You're still not able to save yourself. He's still your savior. Will you let him come and rescue you? Will you still put your trust in him? Will you stop trying to direct your life and manage your life? Will you surrender it to him? Let him be the savior and never take for granted the one who saved you. Jesus is Lord. His name is the name above every name. We know it, and this season, let's celebrate it and live it.